What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. This is Anthony. And this is James. And today we're going to do some rated R superhero movies, specifically Logan, Deadpool, and Constantine. I love rated R films, and when comic books get to have that rating, it's so much more fun, especially for characters like Wolverine, especially for his gore, and the, you're able to see the real violence. And then with Deadpool, you get to hear the the graphic comedy and the raunchy humor. And then with Constantine, you get to see the dark tones of uh, good versus evil. No, yeah, I totally agree. Like when we when Blades were coming out, like those are some awesome rated R films because oh, yeah, that's the best way to tell those stories of that character mm-hmm. and that hero and that antihero, if you want to say is through rated R content and violence and action and and in t- uh, tones. But then, like you just said, Logan and Deadpool, lots of violence, lots of gore. Deadpool specifically, the humor, the, the raunchy, dirty humor. But Constantine, it kind of, sometimes you watch and you feel like, I didn't even know this was a rated R film because it seems kind of tame for what it could have been. Well, the producers didn't think it would get rated R. They thought it was going to be PG-13, but the MPAA gave it the R rating because of the dark tones and because there are demons in it. Nowadays, I think you can get away with demons, no problem, but yeah. it's because of the demons they got the R rating, because which is kind of ridiculous because it's not that graphic of a movie. It's not graphic, and they, I think there's a couple cuss words. That's about it, and, yeah. and I don't think there's really any nudity, maybe one shot of Otherwise, they would have gone a little bit more far into our territory yeah. filming-wise and writing-wise because they weren't expecting it, so it was a surprise for them. But it's still a movie that I really enjoy, even though it gets a lot of hate. I think it's 46% rotten on Rotten Tomatoes, but yeah. we, you know how we feel about Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, oh yeah. Four, yeah, th- th- those guys. We Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, exactly. But and, and then in terms of the reason why superhero movies, large scale ones, had never been rated R before Deadpool and Logan was because uh, they studios never thought they would make enough money to recover. Because Blade can be rated R because the budget's thirty million. You know, it's fine. Hellboy uh, two. I mean, the new Hellboy was rated R, but it was only like thirty five million dollar budget. So, uh, but the things like an X Men movie or a big property like Deadpool, like. They needed big budgets, and so they didn't think they could recuperate their budgets with the R rating. And obviously, they were very wrong because they didn't understand that that's what audiences want. They want to see blood and gore in a Wolverine movie, and then they want to hear all the fun humor in a Deadpool movie. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I love Marvel movies, and like I know they have the very PG tones because they're technically made for families, and they want kids to go see those movies. And so they're they're very uh, they don't sh- they're a lot of off screen gore. They don't really show a lot of blood or anything like that. But I mean, if you read graphic novels, if if you're a fan of them, they're pretty dark. Some of them, and in, in especially like some of the Batman ones, uh, a lot of these the Blade ones. And do you com- think the new Batman might be rated R? Uh, the Batman, no way, dude. No. It's, it's Batman. They're not yeah. gonna make that. I, I maybe a PG thirteen. I doubt it. But again, it's a family commodity. You know, they, yeah. they want kids to go see that movie. I wonder though. I don't. I don't think they. There's no way they would go rated R. Yeah. I mean, I wish they went that rated would be R. Sick. They're, that's just too much of money they they could make. Yeah. If it's talking PG. like at least seven hundred million. Yeah. Because Deadpool made over seven hundred million and Logan made over six hundred million, so they were gigantic hits. Yeah, but I it's I think it's just a different audience that that Batman taps into versus Deadpool's audience. Cause I think a lot of people re-saw Deadpool and saw it in theaters multiple times. I think it was one of those films that people, mm. not saying that people don't do it with Batman, but Deadpool definitely had people going to the theaters a couple times to see it. Well, Deadpool has fervent fans. Yeah. Like, they love the character. When there was a, a legitimate adaptation of the character, they were very excited for it. Yeah, I mean, they've been waiting literally decades for an adaptation, and, and Ryan Reynolds, we'll, we'll get into it when we talk about Deadpool, has spent like 15 years trying to get this movie made since like 2004, and they did a mm. horrible job with it in X-Men Wolverine Origins. Origins. Yeah, that movie was terrible, and he, he obviously played Deadpool in that movie, but I mean, the guy has no mouth, he doesn't speak, and he it, it just didn't work, and I'm sure he hated doing it. Yeah. But I mean, he's a character he's always wanted to play, but um, we'll get into that, and obviously the first film we're going to talk about is Logan. If you like our podcast and content, the best way to support us is share us with your movie friends and family members. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving those five-star reviews are super beneficial, especially those written ones. We love to read them. And join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Raiders of Lost Podcast to get special perks. And top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast. In honor of today's episode, we're doing a very special Blu-ray giveaway of your favorite Deadpool movie. All you have to do to enter is subscribe to our YouTube channel or already be subscribed. Comment on the giveaway video your favorite Deadpool movie, either Deadpool 1 or Deadpool 2. We will do a random drawing at the end of the week to pick a winner. Again, go to YouTube, subscribe, comment your favorite Deadpool movie on our giveaway video. Good luck, everyone. The first movie on our episode is Logan, released March 3rd, 2017.
written and directed by James Mangold, and co-written by Scott Frank and Michael Green. This film stars Hugh Jackman, Patrick Stewart, Daphne Keene, Boyd Holbrook, and Stephen Merchant. Logan grossed $619 million on a budget of $97 million. In a future where mutants are nearly extinct, an elderly and weary Logan leads a quiet life. But when Laura, a mutant child pursued by scientists, comes to him for help, he must get her to safety. Logan, in my opinion, is a perfect film. It's dark, it's very well written, it's violent, it's heartbreaking. And I put this in the same class of, of superhero film or comic book film as The Dark Knight. And even Joker is there too. Um, like Logan, these films, they, they left that realm of just like the superhero genre, comic book genre, movie. And they made something more, they made something greater. And I think directors James Mangold for Logan, then Todd Phillips for Joker, they recognize that in order to tell these kinds of stories that they're interested in telling while also reaching a large audience and getting large budgets to make them, or decently large budgets to make them, they have to be done with the vehicle of a comic book superhero, which is unfortunate that we're living in that world today, but it makes for some great takes on comic book heroes. Yeah, this this film, like you said, just like Dark Knight and Joker, they are they basically, I mean, they're comic book movies, but they don't feel like comic book movies. And it's basically uh, what you would call postmodernism, where... Uh, you you take something and you completely change the approach to it, and you're dissecting it. and And the movie, the movies like movies like this, they have something to say about comic books that were never really said before. So it's a, a change to the approach of how you make a comic book film and how you write one. and And this is something I've always wanted to see since the first X Men came out, uh, an R rated Wolverine movie, because that's something that, as great as the X Men movies are, and Logan is always, in my opinion, the best character in all of them. I think he's the most interesting, complex, fascinating, entertaining character, and he obviously uh, was the face of the franchise. But you still and never saw the full potential of Wolverine action sequences because it's PG-13. You don't see any blood. You don't see any limbs getting hacked off. And, and these his blades are so massive. It's like the damage that he can do in an R-rated film, and you can actually see it, it's something that was always just on the back of my head whenever I saw X-Men movies. I'm like, oh, I wish I could actually see what, what damage he could actually do to these guys he's fighting. And we finally got that in this film. And James Mangold pulled no punches, and he went right into it right away with the opening scene. Yeah, it's the opening scene they open up and show basically what this film's going to be. He's in the limousine. Uh, Logan's asleep. Uh, he's a driver. He seems to be like kind of like... Like it's kind of like Unforgiven. Clint Eastwood's character is like an old outlaw cowboy who who put his his guns away years ago. Like Logan's hung up his claws. He's like a. There's even like X Men comic books in this world, and he's like yeah. an old hero, but no one really yeah, the cares comics about are him telling anymore. The stories of their exploits. Yeah, and he's basically like living a normal life, but also there's a, he's going through a lot as well as with Professor X. But then we see this opening scene of him destroying people with these claws because it's animantium claws like what they would sh should be doing in a battle in a combat situation chopping limbs off like you said blood everywhere and and they really went to went full stride with that and and the fight choreography in this film it's so natural but also seems improvisational at the same time and i think that's one of my favorite parts of the film because they're you're in there close-up shots with the fighting rather than Typical X-Men movie, typical Wolverine movie, the, a lot of the claws are off camera or it's just like a yeah. typical stab like to the chest, something like that. But we're really seeing legit it, gore. And on top of that, so like the other ones, there's a lot of quick editing, whereas Mangold is slow with his editing and he shoots uh, a lot of mediums in this in these action sequences. And he holds the camera pretty long for certain takes. Like there's a moment where he literally just jams his claws over and over and over again into a guy's chest and it's just one shot. Mm -hmm. And so that's something we never saw before, just him going ballistic on people. And it was just such a brilliant way to film um, the action sequence is in such a great way to open the film because, like you said, Mangold is telling you what this movie is. It's different. Right off the bat, we know what we're getting, and we know this is a completely new take on the character because Mangold made the previous solo Wolverine movie. Um, uh, what was it called? Just Wolverine? I think so, yeah. The Wolverine, set in Japan, which was good. It was good, but it was still kind of lacking in terms of the violence, and that's something that pe people enjoy, seeing violence. And we've talked about it on this podcast plenty of times, and and it was always uh, just never hit the bar that we were expecting. And with this film, it matched what we wanted to see with the character, but then also told the story with a refreshing take on the character. Because, like you said, Logan is very different now, where he's Logan has completely lost hope in himself and he's lost lost belief and he's kind of lost the will to to fight because all of his friends are dead, all of his family is dead. There are hardly any mutants left, and mutants have gone extinct pretty much. And he's kind of lost any will to do anything. And pretty much, he pretty much lives to 
to give Xavier comfort in his twilight years as he suffers through dementia. And he's just a, a very changed character, and I thought it was a, a brilliant way to start this character's arc in this film because he goes through a major transformation for sure. Yeah, Logan now, he, he's aging, obviously. You can see that as, um, on the surface with his gray hair, and you can see just, like, wrinkled, wrinkled skin, and the, the makeup artist did a phenomenal job in this film, like, giving him, like, bloodshot contacts and, like, yellow-looking eyes to make him look like he's in constant pain, and he's suffering some sort of from some sort of disease that we don't know it's about. It's poisoning of his blood from the animantium. Yeah, so the, his body's rejecting yeah. the animantium in his, in his skull. And in, it, seems, on, to be, it seems to be like it was always inevitable, but because of his healing powers, it always kind of uh, kept it at bay for a while, but now I think it's... It slowly po is, has poisoned him to this point where he's literally dying. Yeah, the self-healing power that he once possessed that kept him ageless, basically. It's failing him. Um, he's he's becoming more mentally unstable as well as becoming an alcoholic too, suffering from this mysterious disease of the blood poisoning. And again, the attention to detail of Logan in this film is in makeup design is exceptional because... The wounds are really emphasized. Uh, they're very gory. And one of my favorite attention to details that they do is is normally when his claws come out and retract, there's no scarring, no blood or anything. But now you see the scarring on his knuckles from his claws retracting from yeah. years of use. And now that he's losing that power to heal quickly, he's got scarring and basically open wounds on his claw hands. That, but also something that I've always wanted to see is that I wonder, like, when his claws come out, shouldn't his hands get bloody from it? Because he's tearing through the flesh. That's pretty interesting. Because he's not like it's not like he's a, an animal with claws like a cat, where there's uh, different kinds of skin and texture to allow the claws, claws to pass through. But his claws are literally just passing through his his knuckles. So I always thought like, oh, shouldn't his claws already be like covered in blood when they come out? Like that's just what I always, I've always thought. Maybe they're clawing up those wounds with the claws. <laughs> but but he looks more like a wild animal than ever before. Like when you look at Logan in this film, it looks like those old lions in the jungle or tigers or like a wolf in the wild. They they've gone through so many battles. Their faces are scarred with with wounds from from fights they've been in, and they've just look like they're almost in the last legs. But they don't want to give up that alpha position yet. It's that, and on top of that, they they got rid of the signature look of Wolverine, the like the mutton chops, mm -hmm. and then the like the, the peak on both sides of his head with the hair yeah. uh, like peaks on the edges and so they just gave him just a full beard and just like his beard is literally the same length as, as his hair so it's all the same length so it's just very simple and I thought it was a great look for the character and then it's it's fun when he does shave his beard in the center to get that classic look back because it's, it literally represents him being Logan again and, and gaining his will to fight again at the end of the film, but I thought that it was a really interesting look because everything about this they're they're in they're inverting our expectations for what we had for the film in a great way. And I would say probably my one of the, the strengths of the film is the scope of the film because the world is not at stake, millions of lives aren't at stake. It's just the he's just trying to get this girl across the border into safety. That's it. The scope is so small. It makes it very personal and emotional because that's what I found so surprising about this film is how emotional it is and how uh, authentic it is and hum in how much uh, humanity Logan is able to portray in this film because ultimately this is a story about Logan as a character. It's not about uh, stopping the end of the world. It's not about some big villain. It's about Logan, and that's what is the strength of the film, I think. Yeah, the script is really well written by Mangold, and it's an, he, it got nominated for an Oscar. He wrote, he wrote it, right? Yeah, just double checking. He co-wrote it. Uh, and I love the concept of the entire film and, and the d different side arcs of the film. You know, mutants are dying out, some are being hunted, and Professor Charles Xavier, who's going through Alzheimer's now, unable to control his immense powers. And usually we see Professor Charles Xavier as incredibly wise, incredibly powerful, but I think one of the, the great strengths of this script that Mangold does is he creates a lot of vulnerability in these characters, and that makes them easy to care for, and that raises the stakes of all their situations, their personal goals that they're trying to achieve. You know, Laura's this brilliantly played by this young girl Daphne uh, Keene who beat up Millie Bobby Brown for the role actually oh really who, who uh, this is before she was on Stranger Things of uh -huh. course so she beat her out for this I think that was like 2015 she's very talented yeah she's, she's on uh, his dark materials but I mean Professor X a, a man who's always with a plan and, and look at him he's he's grounded like, as a superhero like we've never seen one done before putting a once great hero into the hands of, of close death Alzheimer's elderly age um, something that we're all familiar with in our lives. I'm sure most of us have experienced relatives with dementia, with Alzheimer's, uh, suffering from old from old age, the end of their life, and he's at the end of his life cycle. And he's he's he. Uh, 
Patrick Stewart lost like 20 pounds just to play this this role as this character, and it's incredible to see as well as as odd as it is, it's very moving and emotional at the same time. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Manscaped has been super generous. Their rep, Kyle, sends us everything they got. Their lawnmower groomer has like 8,000 RPM. It's got a light. It's waterproof. You can use it in the shower. It's the best clippers. Yeah, it's the best clippers I've ever used in my life. They're fantastic. We got their weed whacker, deodorants, t-shirts. They're, again, their deodorizer foot spray. I'm obsessed with I use it every day to keep my toesies smelling fresh. They're perfect. They also have wipes that make you uh, nice and fresh. Yeah, so they got uh, refreshing wipes as well. Grooming's a necessary part of life, fellas. You got to get the stuff from Manscaped. Ladies, if you got men in your life, they would really appreciate this gift for a birthday, whatever. Just just here's a new gift to take care of your, your messy face and body. I'm sick of smelling it. And you're looking at all the, the hair coming out of your nose. Please groom. Starting to look like Wolverine in quarantine. Yeah, exactly. Please groom with Manscaped using our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Yeah, it's a brilliant uh, take on the character and... It's something that we never see in superhero movies is the idea of old age and, and facing death because Xavier's on knocking on death's doorstep. And uh, what I thought was a really brilliant take on the character was uh, whenever he has a seizure or a stroke, I, I'm not sure which one it is. Seizure. A seizure. Um, his, because of it, the power of his mind, he has a horrible effect on everyone around him within like a several mile radius. And it's almost like a... Like some mental bomb is going off. He's and, basically a nuclear warhead. Yeah, he's like a nuclear warhead. And uh, his, he's uh, been a hero his whole life, but now he poses a dangerous threat to possibly millions of people who surround him whenever um, one of these seizures takes place. And uh, maybe um, they're, gearing, they're preparing for like maybe there's going to be a, a final seizure that will be so big it will kill him as well as millions of other people. So that's why, that's why Logan has him living in that big warehouse and – He's trying to keep him isolated in the middle of the desert as in order to protect um, anyone from harm because of him. And it, it was it's so amazing to see Xavier portrayed like this because like you said, he's always been the wise leader of the X-Men. He's been the father figure. He's always been he's always been so assured so sure of himself and, and in charge. And it was just a, a great take on the character, just the same thing as Logan. And speaking of Logan, I just want to take a second to talk about Hugh Jackman because this guy embodied this character like few people have embodied any character in in film franchises and there aren't enough good things to say about this 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 guy Hugh Jackman he's very talented he can dance he can sing act he can clearly Triple lift threat. his freaking ass off at the gym this guy that works guy's hard through the deadlifts Holy that guy does crap this guy is jacked every time like look at X-Men Wolverine in the first one and then see him in in just like the last couple of Logan movies Wolverine yeah. movies well, the Wolverine he was insane insane yeah. ridiculous shape and it's hard to think of a film role also that requires as much energy as I'm sure playing Logan does because the guy spends the entire movie always screaming and fighting people so like can you <laughs> imagine like the toll it takes on Hugh Jackman I can only imagine and um, do you know the story of how he got cast I, I know they, they gave it a they offered it to Russell Crowe right so Russell Crowe was the first choice by Fox to star as a, Log as a Logan and he turned it down because he didn't at the time he didn't want to do superhero movies and so he recommended Hugh Jackman um, because they were friends because they're from both actors from Australia and Fox they didn't really know much about Hugh so they kind of passed on him and, and instead they cast uh, the actor Dougery Scott who's a, a really good actor you've seen him a ton of stuff Dougery Scott was cast as uh, Logan for X Men while he was filming Mission Impossible Two so he was the villain in Mission Impossible oh, Two yeah yeah and so what happened was he got he got the role. And so he could have filmed his role as Logan in X-Men while he was filming uh, Mission Impossible 2. They could have worked out the scheduling, but Tom Cruise forbid him from doing it. And Because Tom Cruise said, as long as this film is being made, you have to be on set because you need to be totally committed to this movie. And so Doug Ray Scott wasn't allowed to play Logan in, in, in uh, X-Men. And so Fox went back to Hugh Jackman, auditioned him, and loved him, so they cast him as, as Wolverine. And so that's how he got the role of Wolverine. And little did he know he would be the villain in the only bad Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> Mission Impossible 2 is not that good yeah. of a movie. So I, I imagine that guy hates Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, hey, you take a shot, you're working with Tom Cruise, you're working on this new comic book commodity. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't yeah. know where it's going, but still, I probably would have done Logan. I mean, yeah. it seems like a pretty cool role to me. Yeah. And um, throughout this film, 
Logan, he's always been an animal. He's always been wild, especially in the first early X-Men films. They're always trying to tame him, bring him down to earth in a way, make him more human. But he spends this film becoming more of a man than ever before. And the more time he spends with Laura and after going through the loss of Professor X, and he, he becomes more humble. He, he gains more humility through the, through the transformations of his character in this film, I think. Yeah, Logan has lost his will to do anything, and he doesn't believe that he can have any friends or family anymore because everyone that he loved has died. And so he believes that he says the line to Laura that bad things happen to people I love. And so he doesn't want anyone to get close to him. But Xavier is trying to get him to get back out there, to start living again, to start to gain the will and the hope to live because Logan has lost his will to fight. I mean, this is the guy who used to put his life on the line time and time again to, to save others and, and to, to benefit the world. And now he's just given up and he's thrown in his claws, like you said, and he doesn't want anything to do with any other mutants. And, and he's cut himself off. Not just, I think so he's, he's isolated Xavier and he's isolated himself as well. And so when Laura comes into the picture, he slowly regains his humanity and slowly regains his ability to love again. Yeah, because there's an insinuation that he's uh, Laura's father. At Professor X kind of hints at it a few times, and obviously uh, it's a, a pregnant or it's a child that he had no idea about because his his DNA was used to basically help create Laura. Yeah, she was she made became. in a lab. So she was made in a lab, and obviously th this is a great storyline that we, obviously we've seen it before, but it's really great in this film with uh, this mad scientist, Doctor Price. Yeah, Pierce. No, Do no. Um, yeah, Dr. Rice. Rice, Rice. Rice. With, with this basically mad sinister scientist, Dr. Rice, who's running this lab, uh, creating mutants in his own way. And that's obviously where we get um, X-24, which is this clone of, of oh, Logan. Man. And obviously you can assume that his name is X-24. This, is, uh, this must be the 24th attempt at cloning this specimen of Logan. And it's, it's so amazing to see... Logan versus X-24 on camera at the same time. The way they filmed them both in the shots when they're on camera together is they actually had a stunt actor as X-24, and then they would superimpose basically a very high-quality um, deep fake with, with yeah. Hugh Jackman's face. But whenever— It helps X that the guy doesn't talk. Yeah, uh, but because <laughs> it's not Hugh Jackman, because <laughs> Hugh Jackman is too good at yeah. acting. But whenever X twenty four is on camera by himself, that's actually Hugh Jackman playing the role. Yeah, so same he, effect at the same so time. He, he did both, and it's they they used state of the art um, CGI for uh, superimposing the head. They also used the same CGI for several of the stunt action sequences. So, for example, um, the car chase at the desert warehouse when they are escaping Pierce and his men. And, you, and uh, Logan is driving the limousine through the area before they crash into the fence and break through the fence. Um, it's actually a stunt driver the whole time um, because they shot with very little CGI in terms of the stunts. And they wanted, like, real driving with these all these vehicles chasing Logan. And so they had a stunt driver driving this car, and they just CGI'd Hugh Jackman's face on top of him. And so you, there's actually amazing behind-the-scenes photos of, like, this random stunt guy driving, and then they just put his face on. And, and you wouldn't know it. It looks so good in the movie. The last thing you would think is that that's a, actually a stunt double. And the story itself actually um, owes a lot to the movie Children of Men. Yeah, it reminds me of that. In a lot of ways. First of all, uh, in Children of Men, uh, babies have stopped being born for many years. And in Logan, mutants have stopped being born. And in... Children of Men, uh, Clive Owen's character is tasked with uh, bringing this young woman across the border to this uh, new so the, an another society, and Logan is tasked with bringing Laura into Canada across to Eden, to Eden across the border, and so both characters, um, they both take the jobs because of the money, and then eventually throughout the course of the film, they both become more, uh, they both gain their humanity back and their their belief, and they gain their hope back. And then they end up putting their lives on the line to protect these girls. And then they end up sacrificing themselves to to protect the woman and to protect Laura. So uh, I'm not saying it's, it's a ripoff of Children of Men, but I think it was a great uh, blueprint for this film using Children of Men as a starting off point. Yeah, I can see a lot of similarities between the two characters that Clive Owen and Hugh Jackman play in those two films. And I think, obviously, towards the end of the second act and third act, Logan seems to realize that, you know, he's got one more of those hero journeys left inside of him. He's got one more in the tank to do. Put me in, coach. And he does everything he can to eventually protect this girl from this team of mercenaries that are chasing them, which are led 
awesomely by Boyd Holbrook. I just want to give a shout out to this guy. He's great. He plays Donald Pierce. He's such a great actor, and he, yeah. he plays a great villain in this movie. He's like, in Narcos, if anyone's yeah, seen it. He's such a phenomenal actor, and he plays like a really cool like bounty hunter, merc kind of guy, and he's got that robotic arm. He's a real son of a bitch in this movie. But again, Logan, he becomes so attached to this girl, especially after the passing of Professor X, which we'll get into in a sec, because that was an incredibly hard moment for Logan in this film, because... At the time of Professor X's death, he cared more about trying to save Professor X than trying to save the girl, and he let the girl get it taken away. And also, uh, Xavier's death came at such a, a, a shock because we thought it was Logan that was walking into the room. We didn't realize it was X-24 at the moment, and then he, he just died so quickly, and that's what was so powerful about it. It wasn't like this big scene. It was just like he woke up and saw what he thought was Logan, and then X-24 just just stabs him in the chest and it, and then he's dead and that was that's it. The, that's the saddest part of yeah. that is is you think that Logan probably assumes that Professor X thought he was killed by Logan. Yeah, that's exa- that's the tragedy of it. Yeah. He thinks that Logan killed him and I'm I'm sure that like that burial scene when Logan's finished digging and then he's just looking down at Xavier's grave. You, you the pain and anguish that Jackman portrays is just it's so powerful and you can see that he's he's burying the last member of his family. Yeah, I think this is probably his best performance in his career, even though it's a comic book movie. It's, he's yeah. so freaking good in this movie. He is. And this fight between X-24 and Logan, the first one, and even the, the last one, too, they're, they're so phenomenal because, like you were talking about earlier, we always wanted, like, a and deserved a rated R Wolverine film. We wanted to see what this this character was capable of because he's such a savage and he's such an animal <laughs> and he's clearly... And what can those claws really do? Yeah, and when, and even the comic books, he's so powerful and strong and to finally... See, instead of just throwing punches with his claws, we get to see this... The, the brute strength of Wolverine, which we really never saw either and that's one Berserker of his, mode. Yeah, so basically X-24 is in that Berserker mode 24-7 yeah. and to see the, the strength and the speed and the ferocity of... Of Logan in his prime in a rated R film, even though it's a clone, it's incredible to see. Yeah, and, and so it's amazing because, like, especially that scene when Xavier is having the seizure in Las Vegas, and and Logan is in a, the only person able to move through the environment because of his healing ability, and then he just slowly approaches each henchman, and they they see him with his eye with their eyes, yeah. and they're just like, no, <laughs> they can't move, <laughs> and then he just slowly brings his fist up to their heads and just. Uh, throws out his claws through their skulls and it's just so so disturbing and such a great unique take on how to do him killing someone and just to see even even though you don't see like too much you see the tips of his blades peek out of their other sides of their heads but still the and concept so of what's happening we yeah. always we deserve that we needed that exactly and then that that first action sequence with laura uh when the mercenaries find her and and she comes out of the warehouse and she just throws that henchman's head onto the ground it's a great action sequence, and and they're super brutal to her. Like she gets that spear through her chest, and there's just intense, like gory action where she's hacking limbs off. And I think that they really pull no punches in terms of what they did with this film, and it's everything we wanted. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast is also sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use our special coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. MoviePosters.com is the number one place to get your movie posters online today. They sent us all these amazing posters on our set. We keep adding to it. I just got the good, bad, and the ugly, and I just got a, another a Vertigo poster as well. These posters are high quality. They have every size, movie you can think of, framing, backlighting, lamination. They do it all. Shipping super fast. These posters are not just high quality, but they're super affordable. Use our special coupon code, Raiders15, to get 15% off your order today. Again, Raiders15 from MoviePosters.com. Yeah, and it's truly at times a horror film. Like when X-24 is on camera. It's scary. And the music is going yeah. because Marco Beltrami did the the score for this mu- this film. The music is incredible, but like when X-24 is on, it feels like the Terminator, but even scarier. He's, he seemed, even though he's not as indestructible as the Terminator, it, it, he seems like he is. And it's just, it's just a monster movie whenever he's on camera. Yeah, he's younger, faster, stronger, and uh, has the typical healing power we're used to with Wolverine whereas Wolver- whereas Logan is is old and weathered and he can't handle X24 and it's clear that he can't handle him uh, on their first fight and so it's disturbing when he, when they go after he, when they have to fight because Logan gets his ass handed to him and, and the fight is brutal and it's just Logan takes so much punishment in this film and when you see that after each fight he's not healing quickly and he's healing he is healing but it's taking him a lot of time 
And like when he's examining his wounds, like you've never seen that happen to Logan before. And so it was completely, it was like Spider-Man losing his powers in Spider-Man 2, which is a great new take on the character. Yeah, the vulnerability of these characters, especially uh, Professor X and Logan, is really what grounds this film with realism. Then we get the incredible conclusion in the final act in that the last battle between X-24 and Logan, where Logan, uh, just him running through the woods, just screaming yeah. and chopping people up. And I love the behind the scenes yeah, ADR the, yeah. recordings of Hugh Jackman, just like, <gasps> I love that. It's so badass to watch. And the guy's such a great actor. Yeah, it's just an incredible final act and final scene. And this, this battle is intense. And I wept like a baby after he sacrificed himself to save Lara and the other children, the other mutants who yeah. were being experimented on to let them uh, start their new civilization in Eden. And it's a really tragic end, which Deadpool 2 just roasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with him spitting on the thing. Yeah. That's great. I, I think one of the, one of my favorite parts about this movie is the lack of mutants. Mm-hmm. There are only a few mutants, a handful of mutants in this movie, and I think that's the strength of the one of the strengths of the film because it's not like mutants all over the place. There aren't like super-powered beings fighting all the time. It, it's often just Logan. Um, and I just really love that about this film, how how small the cast is in terms of X-Men characters and mutant characters. Yeah, of course, we have to bring up Stephen Merchant, who plays Caliban, who's a very yeah. underrated actor. He's very good in this movie. He's a character who's basically, he he does um, betray Logan and Professor X, but out of, you know, survival, to provi- save himself and save yeah. his life and out of torture. But then he does eventually redeem himself with those grenades, which is pretty badass. But Stephen Merchant, really underrated actor. And awesome. writer. Yeah. Who do you think could um could play the next uh, version of Wolverine? I'd have to think about it. I mean, I would love to see. I think Tom Hardy would do a phenomenal job because he's he seems like Wolverine body physique wise. Because yeah, Wolverine in the comic books is a short, stocky guy and he's and he's jacked. I think Tom Hardy could pull it off. He seems like he has yeah. hairy forearms as well, so <laughs> I think he could do it. <laughs> I made a list of actors I think could do it. Who you got? Uh, but they got to get pretty big. I mean, I let people say Keanu, but he's too old Ke- to do no, it. No, he's way too old. He's too he's old. old. In, his in his prime, his, maybe he's in his fifties. But Keanu, he's not like a jack guy ever. Yeah. So I don't think he could. Do it. And you can't put on that much muscle when you're that old. Like Hugh Jackman was pushing it at this age. And I'm, I'm sure he was doing some stuff. Yeah, he was. He, I'm actors. sure he was working very hard to get that size at this age. But I think some some actors who could be a good Wolverine are Kit Harrington. Oh, I can see that. Jack O'Connell, very underrated actor. I think Michael B. Jordan could do something cool with it. That'd be cool. Yeah. Um, Dacker Montgomery from Stranger Things, who played Billy. Mm. Um, Dev Patel could do something cool. I think Henry Cavill, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then Liam Hemsworth could. I think he could pull it off. I thought you were going to say uh, Liam Neeson. <laughs> <laughs> Taken with Logan. <laughs> I have a certain particular yeah. set of, of claws. <laughs> but I think I think Kit Harrington could be a good choice because he is, he is short that. and stocky. And I mean, he, he got big for that glad, for that um, Pompeii movie. Well, he got he got shredded for that movie. No, yeah, he didn't yeah. get big. He's, yeah. he's a small guy. He got actor shredded, which is like a 145-pound soaking wet. For Wolverine, <laughs> On you, camera, it looks good. You got to get On enormous. camera, it looks big. You got to get enormous. But I think those are, those are actors that could do a good job with it. I think maybe Jack O'Connell might be the best choice. But I mean, they're going to do it eventually, so I wonder. I just wonder who it will be. And I think if they do it again, I don't think he should. Maybe they should start solo again. Let's do some fun facts. Hugh Jackman induced dehydration for 48 hours prior to filming scenes of Wolverine shirtless, losing water weight. He added that the method is dangerous and no one should attempt it at home. This is very common with actors. When you see a guy, a shredded guy shirtless in Hollywood, chances are he's been starving himself and not drinking water for two days straight. That No one looks like that naturally, although that is commitment. Hugh Jackman actually, uh, part part of the reason why Hugh Jackman retired this character is not just his age, but also he suffered from skin cancer. And so uh, he had to retire because of that. And also saying that he had a discussion with Jerry Seinfeld about retiring the character because Jerry said that um, the reason why he retired Seinfeld from the TV show is that he thought that audience audiences were becoming weary of seeing him anymore. Like, oh, it's you again. And so after this conversation with Seinfeld, he finally decided, oh, I have to do Logan one last time, and then that's it. That's smart because it makes it age better and it keeps it fresh later on in people's heads. James Mangold stated that this movie is set in 2029 to avoid any conflict with the timeline established in X-Men Days of Future Past, which came out in 2014, but that his goal was to make a standalone movie that was not bound to continuing previous storylines or setting up sequels. Hugh Jackman said that he would only reprise the role of Wolverine if it was for a Deadpool movie. The explanation why there are no mutants in the last 25 years in America is that high fructose corn syrup derived from from genetically modified corn crops was altered and spread by Dr. Rice to specifically cause sterility and suppress the mutant gene. Two scenes in this movie allude to this. The first is when 
Willie Munson tells Logan about the corn while fixing the leaked pipes in the fields. The other one is when Dr. Rice mentions corn cereals to Logan at the climax. You know what? Actually, before they do a Logan remake or cast a new Wolverine, I think that Daphne Keene should get her own franchise. That'd be pretty I cool. Think that'd be, I would like to see her because she's like in her teens now, and probably by the time they would film one, she'd probably be like 16 or so, and then she would be in her 20s when they make sequels. So I think I would be really interested to see her own franchise. Or like as a TV X, show. Yeah, as X-23. I think that would yeah. be really cool. Next up, Deadpool, directed by Tim Miller in 2016, written by Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick. This film stars Ryan Reynolds, Marina Bakarin, Ed Skrine, Karen Suni, T.J. Miller, Stefan Kapicic, and Brianna Hildenbrand. On a budget of $58 million, this film had a worldwide box office of $782 million. A wise-cracking mercenary gets experimented on and becomes immortal but ugly and sets out to track down the man that ruined his looks. I think this could be the funniest comic book movie ever. It's definitely up there. It's so much fun. It's so entertaining. And Wade Wilson is a great character. He's a lot of fun. And Ryan Reynolds is just, he's pitch perfect as Deadpool. Obviously, you mentioned earlier that he spent, what, 15 years trying to get the yeah, film made? Yeah, since 2004. And obviously, he's a huge fan of the character and has always been a big fan of him. And I think that the reason why Ryan Reynolds works is because he already possesses a lot of the qualities that Wade Wilson has. He's very charming. He's very funny. He, is, he, he doesn't take things too seriously. He's very playful. And, I mean, his humor is kind of immature and vulgar. So I think he already has... Um, that Wade Wilson quality to him, which makes him perfect. Yeah, this movie is fun with a capital F-U. It's hilarious, <laughs> raunchy, sexy, strangely romantic at times. Heartbreaking, too, and violent as hell. It's exactly where it's supposed to be. It's, it's similar to the comics. It's It really satisfied that craving for hardcore Deadpool fans. Um, don't get me wrong. Again, I love the MCU superhero films, but we need films like Deadpool to help bring us down to earth with this dark humor and violence that we're addicted to, but also that we see and read in comic books and in graphic novels. In Deadpool, it, for me, it seems like it was one of those movies that you know if you're going to love it or not before you even go see it. Yeah, and I had no familiarity with the character at all. I think I, I don't think I really knew anything about me him neither. until the film was being made, and then I, I, I read up on him, and um, obviously we were all surprised, and you can tell why fans of the character love this movie so much, and... Uh, this was, a, I think, a big redemption for Ryan Reynolds for two reasons. Because first, he did Green Lantern, which was an absolute train wreck. Um, and they make fun of. And they make fun of. Um, and I don't, know, I don't know what anyone was thinking with that movie. It was just a, it was a mess. And then he, he, then he played Wade Wilson in X-Men Origins Wolverine, which was a, a horrible adaptation of the character. And that's the first instance I ever saw of Wade Wilson. Um, so I didn't know anything about the character, but... Then I found out about the, the, the costume he wears and that he doesn't ever get these superpowers that he gets in the movie. Like, they gave him laser eyes. They gave him teleportation. They had the swords coming out of his arms. It was ridiculous. And they also took away his costume. And the reason why all this happened was because Fox executives demanded that uh, Ryan Reynolds not wear the costume because they wanted to show him shirtless and they wanted to show his face. And then they thought it would be um, more interesting if he got all these powers and rather than just being Wade Wilson or Deadpool and... Um, I, Ryan Reynolds obviously regrets the role, but I think he I think he said he took the role because he felt that he was still the only person who could properly play Wade Wilson. Because I, Wade yeah. Wilson is Wade Wilson in the first half of the film, although he's not wearing his costume, but he still has the personality of Deadpool. Yeah, I think he probably was trying to play ball with the studios. He's trying yeah. to play ball with 20th Century Fox, who should really get as little credit as possible for <laughs> Deadpool because they, they had zero... Zero um, belief that this movie would be successful. I mean, the, Ryan Reynolds is a celebrity. He's a superstar. Now he is. But, I mean, he's been trying to get this made since 2004. Um, back when he was in Blade Trinity, he wasn't even Wade Wilson in that movie. He's just some yeah. other actor, some other character. And uh, he even went and shot test footage, which he leaked online on purpose because Fox had no intentions to release this footage to the public. And finally, years of begging, basically, and I think that's why he took on that role of Wade Wilson in the crappy X-Men movie, was to, to try to get this greenlit. But again, they, 20th Century Fox didn't think this would be successful. There's a reason why Marvel does so well, because they love the characters, whereas Fox is, is just a movie studio, so they just do things that they think would make money without having the, the love and, and respect for the lore of the characters. and They also cut the budget by $7 million last minute. Oh, wow. That's so crazy. they had to cut some stuff out of the movie. Yeah, and so one of my favorite parts about Deadpool is how 
Wade breaks the fourth wall constantly and how he makes fun of these things. He makes fun of the bad X-Men movies. He makes fun of Fox. He makes fun of himself. He makes fun of Green Lantern. He makes fun of his portrayal of Wade Wilson in X-Men Origins Wolverine. And so I think that um, breaking the fourth wall and having fun with the audience, it really changes the... It's it's so refreshing because you never see it in superhero movies. And it shows that like... We're not taking it too seriously. We're just trying to have fun here. We're going to crack jokes. And I think that referencing the other movies is such a brilliant way to interact with the audience. Yeah, they actually technically break the fourth wall while breaking the fourth wall. So it's kind of like they're breaking like the fourth wall squared. So like the 16th wall or something like that. Yeah, Wade has that line, (laughs) 16 walls. Yeah, I think that's what it was. And then Tim Miller, this is his directorial debut. And he did such a great job. And he actually has a background in animation. And he's the one responsible for the incredible opening scene credits of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo of David Fincher's film. Yeah, and he did um, a few other special effects in David Fincher's films as well. And he's uh, solely responsible, I think, for that great slow motion opening sequence where uh, the crash with the mercenaries is happening and Wade's yeah. just being funny. It's like the, a great uh, opening title credits for the film. And you can see his uh, animation skills at work in sequences like that. They have another one in the second film, uh, uh, super slow-mo like, like that as well. Yeah, but like you said, this film... Is it one of his greatest strengths is it doesn't take itself too seriously and openly points out how unserious it does take itself. But, you know, unlike Logan, it still does hit those typical um, Marvel superhero film beats to an extent, even though it acts like it doesn't. It still does play by the rules at the same time as as like being like the loudmouth like teenager in the in the high school classroom. But it's again, it's a very solid origin story for this awesome, iconic character now that we're all in love with. And they even poke fun at this ironic tone in the film multiple times yeah and also the marketing is was yeah. just genius he is very silly and fun and you you can see the personality of deadpool in the marketing campaign which i'm sure fans loved but also as funny and as ironic as the film is and as meta as it is they're also like you said it gets pretty emotional you get very invested in character they were very smart and they fleshed out the character and his conflicts he is his conflicts are um first of all what those scientists did to him deforming him uh and then also uh, the relationship with Vanessa, where he feels that she would be terrified if she saw his face. Well, also being diagnosed and, with cancer, and, too. Yeah, and also he's before anything happens, he's diagnosed with cancer, which is super serious. And it's portrayed really well. So there are really uh, deep and emotional moments in this film, and which make you really love the character because he's been through so much. And he has a lot of turmoil in his life. And for as funny as this movie is, there's a lot of internal conflict within Wade. Yeah, but there are some great side characters as well, like Weasel, played by T.J. Miller, who provides excellent additional comedy. It seems like he just like spitballs lines on set and whatever works best, they they make the cut. And I also yeah. love the cabbie Doppender, and yeah. it's like a comedic take on that movie Collateral, Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's so funny. But, I mean, sometimes when I'm watching a Deadpool movie, can the satire become a little too much at times? Because they do have a very consistent flow of jokes that, for me, consistently hit. But, I mean, if, if they're not all hitting for you, they, it might get a little little too much, which I think is why we, we'll talk about Deadpool 2 some other days. I think they toned down all, like, the constant humor in Deadpool 2 and made it a little darker and raised the stakes of the story, too. Yeah, I think so, too. It was so I guess you could say it's a little too silly too often in this film sometimes yeah but also i mean some of the jokes are just great like probably my favorite bit in the whole film is when he goes to the the xavier's mansion for yeah. the kids and there's only called <laughs> colossus and, and megasonic uh and they're just the only x-men there and then they keep poking fun of like i guess the studio couldn't afford any other mutants <laughs> <laughs> and when he's being taken to the mansion he's being told that he's gonna meet professor x he asks mcavoy or stewart <laughs> <laughs> i love in the second one when um uh, a, a schoolroom door opens and and Beast is like teaching a class and all the a bunch of characters are inside. Yeah, and he yeah. Closes the, the Quicksilver's door. in there yeah, too. They close the door so that no one will notice them. Is really it's a really great uh, joke right there. But I, I think that might be my favorite one. Just that an empty mansion. Yeah, and I really like how this movie opens up because basically for the character of Deadpool and Wade, we're we're kind of halfway through his transformation throughout the film, opening up with this hilarious opening credit scene of this slow motion montage of incredible action and basically giving us a taste of this character not just his humor but also his incredible fighting prowess and abilities and it's a lot of fun like he's doing he's counting his bullets and uh, he's just having fun with it and yeah. joking around with the guys and because you know you've you've never seen that in a, a shootout before 
like just a, a character just being completely ironic and immature and childish and just joking around the whole time. Yeah, it's a comic book film with comic book characters that they completely exploit that and make fun of that the entire time. It's and a like, character who heals immediately. Like, you, it can't be taken that seriously. And I mean, just saying, like, oh, superhero landing, superhero landing. Yeah. Oh, nailed it. It's like, <laughs> it's really bad on your knees. It's hysterical. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And I love the uh, the relationship between him and Colossus. And <laughs> Colossus is so funny in this movie, and especially when he grabs his ass. <laughs> And if we're going to talk about weaknesses to this film, I'd say really, for me, the only weakness is the villains. I'm not a huge fan of, like, Ajax in this film uh, and Gina Carano's character. They're all right. They're decent, but not that exciting compared to how fun Deadpool is. Yeah, like you said, like uh, he said earlier, I don't think Fox spent enough money for the other characters. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. But I think I agree. Like the, the, the villains were definitely lacking in this film, but it's still it's still a good uh, first film for Deadpool. Yeah, I mean, the comical insanity is what drives this film and what drives people to go see it multiple times and to watch it at home over and over again because it is a great character. It's so unique, so fun, and I can't wait to see the next one. Likewise. Here are some fun facts about Deadpool. On April Fool's Day in 2015, Ryan Reynolds posted on Twitter that the film would be rated PG-13, which prompted fan backlash as the Deadpool character often swears and commits acts of graphic violence. Later that day, Reynolds confirmed that it was a prank and the film would be rated R. Dude, you know people went people crazy on Twitter out. probably for like that. How many death threats did he get that day? <laughs> I can only imagine. I hope you fucking die, Ryan Reynolds. During a talk at Google, Ryan Reynolds revealed that the taxi driver character Dupinder was named after a really cool guy he knew in elementary school who died when he was hit by lightning. It was meant to be a tribute to him. Through the Make-A-Wish Foundation, 13-year-old Connor McGrath, a terminally ill fan from Edmonton, requested to attend the special event for Deadpool's release in January. However, he could not make it due to the severity of his own illness. Ryan Reynolds heard the story, traveled to Edmonton, and surprised him with a private screening of the film in his hospital room. Reynolds said the boy was the first person to ever see Deadpool. They kept in touch until Connor's passing a few months later, and Ryan Reynolds paid tribute to him on his social media pages. This is another story of how cheap 20th Century Fox is. They refused to pay the writers of the film, Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick, to be on set for the production for input. Ryan Reynolds ended up paying out of his own pocket for them to be on set to overlook the film. Reese stated, we were on set every day. Ryan wanted us there. We were on the project for six years. It was a really core creative team of us, Ryan and director Tim, and director Tim Miller. So this really shows you the commitment that Ryan Reynolds had for this character and also the respect he has for his, his uh, colleagues. That's unbelievable. This, yeah, I mean, this film has a lower budget than any X-Men film. Iron Man, Avengers, or Captain America movies. It took approximately four hours to apply the makeup to Reynolds' face to make him look like the horribly scarred Deadpool. It only gets worse from there, as Reynolds stated. It's like wearing a wet diaper on your face. Still, considering the lengths that he went to to get the movie made, I'm sure he also wouldn't hesitate to say it, it was all worth it. Ryan Reynolds has said that there are over 100 references throughout the entire film of Deadpool, including Easter eggs, pop culture references, cameos, and direct hits at other Marvel films. Next up, we have Constantine. Released on February 18th, 2005. Directed by Francis Lawrence and written by Kevin Broadbin and Frank A. Capello. This film stars Keanu Reeves, Rachel Weisz, Shia LaBeouf, and Jimon Hunsu. Constantine grossed $230 million on a budget of $100 million. John Constantine is known to travel in circles that deal with the occult and exorcisms trying to earn goodwill to change his one-way ticket to Satan's realm. Policewoman Angela Dodson solicits Constantine's help in her investigation to prove that her sister's death was not a suicide and something more was at work. Constantine is one of the most underappreciated comic book movies ever made, in my opinion, and it's one that deserved a sequel. And I know a lot of people hate on this movie. I think we said that it has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 46%, so you either hate or love this movie. And um, a lot of people, they say that the special effects aren't that great, the, the script is slow and kind of corny, and Keanu's acting is supposedly terrible, but I adore this film. I've seen it a bunch of times, and I think it's aged really well. And according to Keanu, he was approached to do a sequel, but he turned it down at the time because he didn't want to do sequels or revisit this character. I think it was, I, I bet he was tired from doing The Matrix. He did that for like five years yeah, so of his life. Big project. So maybe he was worried about doing another franchise at the time, but I'm sure, but years later, clearly he, now he's fine yeah, with it. He regrets not doing it because he's, he's doing all right with John Wick. Well, ironically, he and Francis Lawrence and the writer, the director and writer 
they've been speaking this year about uh, the possibility of making a sequel. Oh, so take my money. I would love to see that because, like you said, it has very mixed reviews, but I think uh, critically it's mixed, but I think fans love it. I think that this is a, a cult film now, um, and people really adore this movie um, after seeing it multiple times, and as, like you said, it's aged really well. I mean, I watched this movie like a month ago, and it was I still was like, this movie's fucking awesome. It's great. Yeah. And I think that this is Keanu Reeves' most underrated movie. I think it's also his most underrated performance because I think a lot of people on the surface, he looks kind of wooden. But you have to understand that John Constantine has kind of lost his humanity. He's lost his his ability to to feel empathy and emotion. And he has become just lost as a person because he knows he's going to hell. And so he's kind of lost, like, what do I live for? And now he's just trying to earn his way back to heavens. But he still has lost any hope in himself and any hope in gaining his humanity back. So I think Keanu did a really great understated and nuanced performance in this film. Yeah, how would you act if you knew, not believed, knew you were going to hell? And his character, John Constantine, it's incredibly fascinating because he's as gifted as he is a flawed individual. He's obviously highly intelligent and motivated, but he's also, he's not a typical hero. He's full of bad habits. John Constantine is cynical. He's an asshole. He's selfish, rude. He chain smokes cigarettes like a Bostonian at AA some night on a Tuesday. <laughs> and most importantly, he was a suicide, but then brought back to life. But Constantine, Constantine killed himself to escape the realities of his life, of, of this curse that he was given, of, of being able to see demons and monsters and angels and spending years living in fear and thinking he was crazy. And this curse he later learns was actually a gift from God. But since suicide uh, in Catholic faith and Christianity is a mortal sin, John went to hell when he was uh, 15 years old when he tried to kill himself. And that's where he realized that everything he saw, it was all real. And so when he was brought back to life, he decided to devote his life to trying to buy his way back into God's good graces and earn a spot in heaven because, again, he was destined to end up in hell eventually once he died again and he does this by exercising demons and saving other people's souls hoping to get forgiveness from god but although he what he doesn't realize is what he's doing it's out of selfish need and desire not to actually help people and be selfless yeah so it's what he doesn't understand that it will never work because he's doing it for himself and he's doing it to to save his soul rather than you like you said to help others and it's a flawed way of thinking because he just thinks he can, if he gets rid of enough demons, God will forgive him and welcome him back. The biggest flaw with his character is his lack of belief because he has this conversation with Gabriel and she says, you have to believe in God. And he says, oh, I believe. But she says, no, you know, you've been shown that he's real. You know that God is real. That doesn't count. You know, he's, you know, it, God exists, but you don't believe in God. And that's the problem. And that's the flaw. That's the major flaw to John's character, the lack of belief. In not just in his faith, but in himself. Yeah, and he, he asked like Gabriel, like, what does he want from me? She's like, it's the usual, self-repentance, uh, selflessness, sacrifice, which is obviously foreshadow, foreshadow for later on in the film. But um, Constantine, he's he, again, he's a great character, and he's this occult detective who spends now his his life doing these. They're good deeds, what he's doing, you know, pulling these demons out of people and, and saving their lives and saving their souls. But again, because he does have selfish needs, he lets his low morals and low ethics steep into his work. And again, he's a very stubborn, cynical person. He has no friends. He lives a very, well, he does have friends, but he lives a very lonely life. John's faced with two problems in this film. Of course, he knows he's going to hell, but he's smoked 30 cigarettes a day since he was 13, and he's on his way to hell within six months or less. So mm -hmm. he's he's destroyed his body and destroyed his lungs from his cigarettes, so he's going to die very soon. And also, he's dealing with this—he's he, aware of this battle between heaven and hell that plays out on earth every single day, every single minute, an hour— and he's, he's very aware of it, but also he's noticing that demons are starting to try to come onto this plane, which they're not supposed to do because there is a balance that both sides have agreed to to not cross over onto the planes. Although there are half-breeds in this film, like half-breed demons, Gabriel's half-breed half angel. Balthazar. And, yeah, and what, yeah. Balthazar. Balthazar. And what these characters do is they, they influence human beings to try to kind of gain their their these souls for their side to try to make people make create sin and commit sin to go to hell or to make people better to have them so sent up to heaven. Yeah, John basically alludes to the idea that God and, the, and Satan made this bet for all the souls of humanity and whoever like could gather the most won. And um, 
it's a, it's a simple way to look at it, but that's pretty much what's going on. And I love I love movies that show depiction of like good versus evil and God versus devil and angels and and demons and exorcism. I I love horror movies that involve that. So that's why I thought it was so much fun to see that put into a comic book film in a comic book realm. And it's such a, a fun take on it. And I although think, you real quick, sorry, yeah. you are going to run the risk. I think with a heaven versus hell film where you're going to turn off a lot of people, maybe who aren't Catholic that yeah. don't want to see films involving religion or heaven or hell yeah. because they completely are, are, are don't believe in it at all. Yeah. But I still, it doesn't matter for, for me if I'm, I'm Catholic or not, but I'm still going to watch it if it's a good movie. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think that uh, one of the best parts about this movie is it's a really uh, creative depiction of hell. Uh, and hell in this movie, it's like, how do you depict hell? It's kind of an impossible thing to to illustrate on a movie that like everyone could agree with, or that like would seem believable. But I think they did a, a really cool job and a, a unique take on how you depict that world, where it's like it's like our world, but it's frozen in time, and it's like all eroded and rusting and and, uh, and rotten, and it's just filled with like fire and brimstone. And I think it was it was a really cool take. The set design is really good in this movie. Um, I think the CGI is fine. I mean, it's 2004. Yeah, but I, what Fl- Francis Lawrence was actually going for with Hell is what he wanted to create this, like, obviously mirror image of our world, but, yeah. like, again, like you said, frozen in time, but also, like, a nuclear wasteland. Like, because time doesn't pass at all, it's like a nuclear bomb is going off at all times. That makes sense. And also, I really I think it's so fascinating, the idea that uh, people who are alive can enter Hell at will, so people like John. And I think that... Entering hell requires a few things. Obviously, it requires a, a powerful psychic, like either John or Angela does it, and you need water, he says, for like lubrication. And then, obviously, uh, it, it helps when you have a cat or something like that, like a, a being that's pure and good. And then also, I think that you have to have already died in order to enter hell again, because John can enter hell um, on his own um, with just his feet dipped in water, whereas Angela, he has to drown her before she can enter hell. So I think that since John has already died in his past, he's able to enter it whenever he wants. Whereas Angela, I think the first time you enter hell, you have to enter it by actually dying first. And then afterwards, then you can enter hell anytime you want. That's interesting. I never uh, like looked at that tub scene as her being drowned to complete death. I never, yeah. I never yeah, thought so I about it, it like that. Yeah. So I think she's killed, but it's like a... Uh, some kind of, uh, what do you call it, ritual. Mm-hmm. So then she's brought back to life immediately. Well, it's, it's interesting that you bring up ritual because John Constantine in the comic books, in the Hellraiser comic books, which are the canon for this film, and obviously a lot of the hardcore fans were disappointed that he wasn't blonde and British because it's based off Sting, the character. But, I mean, it's Keanu Reeves. It's Keanu. It's, yeah, it's a Hollywood film. It's, it is what it is. Um, but in the comic books... Uh, in the graphic novels, he has a lot more powers and like mystical abilities and magical abilities that they don't really hint at or really show very often in the film, which I do like because w- I think what Francis Lawrence was going for was this very like film noir mystery style of filmmaking, and it's it really like follows follows a lot of those old classic noir films very closely in. Uh, so I think they they made they it more to ground it. Yeah, they made it more realistic and took away all of his magical powers and abilities and left it to more simple things that he does or just like his psychic abilities and stuff like that. And but he also just he he sticks to a lot of his intelligence and cunning and expertise in a cult. So yeah, so they left a lot of those um uh supernatural abilities to actual demons and angels, mm-hmm. which I think was probably smarter because it grounds it and makes it more believable. And I think. Uh, this film has my favorite depiction of the devil ever. Yeah, me too, man. Peter Stormar, who's a, a great underrated actor. Um, you've seen him in a ton of stuff. He's always been like a, a supporting actor in so many films, and he's fantastic as Satan because, like, it's kind of a character where it's like, how do you how do you depict the how you depict Satan? Like, it, it, obviously, he's you would depict him as evil and and ruthless, but like, I liked what Stormar did where he he made him like childish and immature and playful. And he likes to crack jokes, and uh, I think that it was. But he's also cruel and bloodthirsty, yeah. and like, and he's scary at a moment. In a moment, like he can be scary, and he is scary looking. Like he's got those tattoos running up his neck, and I like how he's all dressed in white. Yeah. But I think the the best shot of this movie, like, first of all, this movie has amazing cinematography. It's really well shot. All Francis Lawrence's films are are beautiful, and this is like cinematography you don't often see in super, in comic book movies. It's very rare. Um, and this is shot of. After John um, slit his wrist and he's dead and time is frozen and Satan has come up to collect him himself. And then there's a shot 
a wide shot on the ground and John's in the background. And then you see um, Satan's tar-covered feet slowly drop into frame after the tar is like dripping onto the the floor. And it's it's I think the best shot in the movie. It's so great. Yeah, it's so it's my favorite portrayal of Satan for sure, the devil. And I I love the white suit too because if you think about it, you know Satan is a fallen angel, so it makes sense that he's wearing white and like has this white suit, like he he looks like a former angel. And also, I love the fact that Satan has a grudge against a human being. Like, why yeah. would he care? But it's so interesting. And, you know, John is the one soul that he'd come up to collect himself. And Constantine's been killing half demons for years, and obviously that's created this animosity that Satan has for him. And also because he did have him once, but now constant. But John basically escaped hell temporarily when he was brought back to life. And um, the half demons, they basically do Satan's work, and they corrupt people and make them commit sin. And John disrupts that work when he when he kills half demons and also when he exercises people from exercises demons from people. Yeah, because and we also learned from Balthazar that the demons, the half breeds, they want to stay on Earth, mm -hmm. and because he doesn't want to go back to hell. So I think that obviously when we see hell, it's like a horrible place even for demons. Like it's much more comfortable on Earth. So I'm sure that. All the demons, like he said, like Lucifer says that he has a whole theme park waiting for John, which means that he's going to be tortured and tormented for all eternity by like all these demons that he basically put away in prison back into hell. This movie also has a fantastic supporting cast. I mean, Rachel Weisz is phenomenal. She essentially plays three characters, Angela and Isabel, the twins, but also she does momentarily play Mamon, the demon, once it possesses Angela. And then um, Tilda Swinton playing Gabriel, which is fantastic. And then um, Jimon Huju playing uh, Papa Midnight, awesome character as well. Then we have Beeman, who's basically Constantine's Q yeah. in terms of James Bond, gives him the latest weaponry in occult fighting. Um, but but Rachel Weisz and, and Angela and, and Isabel, are, it's a really interesting way to tell the story about how Satan, you know, he wants uh, Satan's son, Mamon, is tr Mamon, someone's going to mad at me about the pronunciation, Mamon. <laughs> Unsubscribed. Um, is trying to take over the earth, and what he needed was a, a powerful psychic. And it starts off the film with, with this young woman, Isabel, committing suicide, jumping off off a roof and you know why did isabel kill herself and she's this de devout christian who would never commit suicide because devout catholics and christians committing suicide is a mortal sin and you will go to hell in their religion um however we learn that isabel eventually committed her committed suicide because she was being possessed by mamon and so she would rather commit suicide and kill herself and go to hell than let the demon and the devil work through her and take over the world and cause caused the end of the world and also angela she also her and isabel they had the gift of being powerful psychics when they grew up just like john did and isabel embraced her gift um while angela uh, rejected it and pretended it wasn't real and that's what created a divide between them and eventually over time angela's gift uh, uh, disappeared because uh, she put it she cast it aside and and John thinks that obviously was a smart decision because it keeps her off the radar of demons. And ironically, entering hell and coming back to the plane of Earth again um, reinvigorates her psychic abilities. And we see that she is very powerful, but it also makes her very vulnerable like John was worried about, which is how she gets captured. Yeah, and also Shia LaBeouf's in this film. He's super young in this movie. And I think one of the one of my like minimal cons to this film is um, as long as the script is and the movie can kind of seem like it drags a little bit, the side characters just kind of come and go randomly, and I would wish to see more of them sometimes. Like, I wish there was more of Shia. I wish we could see more of Papa Midnight um, because y they just come in and out sporadically, and I'd like a little more character development of them. Chaz Kramer, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure um, I'm sure in the TV show they get more screen time, but, yeah, if they make another film, I definitely want to see Jimon Hinsu again. He's, he's fantastic, and... Uh, his character is awesome and i mean this is a, a fantastic movie it's got everything that i want in a movie involving like the occult and demons and angels and i think keanu is excellent in this movie and i think it's it's such an underrated film and if, if a sequel came out i would be so excited to see it yeah because john constantine great character and he goes through an incredible transformation in this film you know he's again very cynical asshole in the beginning of the movie and then the more time, it's kind of like Logan, the more time he spends, spends with Angela, the more humility he gains and, and the more empathetic he becomes. And he ends up sacrificing himself to save Isabel from 
from hell to to let Isabel go to heaven, go to to go home, the and sacrifice. he'll and he'll go to hell. And ironically, this saves John Constantine. And it's that great shot where he's being lifted into heaven, and he's giving the finger to the devil, but the devil's <laughs> like, no, and he, he takes the tar out of his lungs, basically, and he says, this one needs to prove uh, who he is and prove his worth. So basically, Constantine gets a second shot. And he proves that he is willing to change and wants to change, which at the end they show with him chewing the nicotine gum. Yeah, it's great. Great ending. And I wish, obviously, they made a sequel. Hopefully they do make a sequel because that would be a phenomenal time I mean, at the theater. I mean, Keanu's huge right now. He's getting all these sequels made. People are, he's in demand, so Let's I don't go. see, I don't see why it wouldn't happen. The character of John Constantine was rebooted as a TV show in 2014, which lasted only 13 episodes, starring actor Matt Ryan. Before it was cut, but then it was added to the, but then the character was added to the ensemble show DC Legends of Tomorrow, which is still running. And he also appears on the TV show Lucifer. The producers and directors initially wanted Lucifer's look to be leather pants, bare chested wearing a dog collar with spikes and having tattoos all over his face, but the actor Peter Stormare um, decided to come up with his own costume design for the for the film, and he came up with a white suit with tar-covered feet, which I think looked fantastic. That wraps our episode on Radar Superhero Films Logan, Deadpool, and Constantine. Thanks so much for tuning in. There are a lot more Radar ones, so if you guys like this one, we'll do another one soon. Take care, everyone. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost podcast. Hit that subscribe button and notification bell. Listen to the audio formats of Raiders of the Lost podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast.